Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about classical education, old books, old movies, uh, all, all those things that are old. Um, brought to you by three guys who have been involved in classical education, who, you know, just like this kind of stuff. Sponsor or something. It sounded like. Brought to you by by James Joyce. No, not brought to you by James (laughs) Joyce. Um, my the name. state of Plato. Still paying us this <laughs> far later. Uh, uh, my name is Graham Donaldson, and I'm here with my fellow men of learning, Thomas Fletcher Magby. Hi. And Arthur Jan Hannenberg. Yo. And we are going to talk about something absolutely incomprehensible. <laughs> uh, we just had St. Patrick's Pretty Day much. a couple days ago. Yes. And yeah. did anybody have any green beer or ce- nope. celebrate anyway? Did nope. not. I also did not. Uh, I, oh, no, that's not true. I had a Sam Adams. Sam Adams. That's the American Boston uh, uh, Irish, right? Sure. Oh. Uh, Boston. Uh, anyway, um, but in celebration of St. Patrick's Day, no, not in celebration of St. Patrick's Day, but AJ, you're going to talk to us about a book that is loved by few, but <laughs> yeah. those few who love it... Oh. Love it a lot. It's, oh, it's hated by the many. And that is James Joyce <laughs> why Ulysses. You, why are you doing this episode? Because, well, gosh darn it, I'm going to get something out of reading it. I'm, I'm, I did the work. I'm going to get the payoff. I just, no. I'm on Goodreads right now. Can I just read? History, Stephen said, is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. What is, what is Wait, that? what? This is a quote from Ulysses, apparently. History is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. Love loves to love love. That's a quote from this book that we're going to be talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. Why are we doing this? We're doing it. It's because I told you I'm going to get something out of my effort. I thought this book was like, doesn't it mirror the Odyssey? Is yes. It? Yeah, so that's classical. That is classical. Yeah. Kind of. Uh, okay, so listener. It's called we, Ulysses. We are going to be that's talking true. about James Joyce's seminal work, Ulysses. And who boy, is it a doozy? So if I, uh, it's... So I have been on this weird string of episodes, one where I talked about a book about nothing, and this is literally the opposite possible book. This is a book about, it's maximalist. Did we make he, you mad? Like, did we do something? He shoves, <laughs> I don't know why. From here on out, this is my pledge. I'm just going to do philosophy. It's so much easier. There are questions to answer and, I, and clear ideas to deal with. So last one was literally a play about nothing, the one that I did. And this one is a book that's so incomprehensible, it might as well be about nothing. Because I was a flower of the mountain, yes, when I put the rose in my hair like the Andalusian girl. What is this? Oh, I think that's not, that sounds like the last chapter. Okay, great. Okay, so first I'll talk about Joyce and a little bit about Joyce, and then we'll talk about his, his work, Ulysses. And we might read a little bit of it, just a bit, just to kind of give you a feel of the work because it is very strange and very different. And I'll kind of give you my experience with it and what I can tell you about what's going on. Okay. And then, well, yeah, I'll just walk you piece by piece kind of through maybe how you should approach this book. Although, please don't. <laughs> um, I've never thought about a title for a podcast prior to giving the actual podcast. You, I make up those titles yeah. at like three in the morning yes. when I'm editing these and throwing them up on online. Yes. This one is... I read Ulysses, so you don't have to. And that can't be more true than it currently is. All right, so James Joyce. Born in 1882, he died in 1941, and he was born in Dublin, Ireland. He was the eldest of 10 surviving siblings. Wow. 10. That's a lot. 10 siblings. Yeah. That's a lot of brothers and sisters. That's, in, in my opinion, that's too many. Oh, whoa. That's a lot of fights. Okay, that's right? probably true. Like, that's, 
every extra kid, you add a whole bunch of a whole bunch more fights, right? Yes. Okay, so his full name is James Augustine Joyce, oh. or Augustine, depending on how his parents pronounced it, whether or not they were wrong. Uh, he came from Fermoy in County Cork, where his family owned a salt and lime works. Eventually, they moved to Bray, which was 12 miles from Dublin when he was five years old. So in 1881, uh, this was, I guess, right before he was born, they began to slide into poverty, right? Which was made worse by his father's <laughs> heavy drinking and the mis- mismanagement of the family. Uh, his, in fact, it got so bad that his dad's name was published in Stubbs Gazette in a blacklist of debtors and bankrupts in 1891. So I, I guess this is, this has to be, I, I must have mistyped the date. So this is 1891 that the family begins to slide oh. into poverty. So okay. he's probably nine. Uh, and then he eventually was suspended from work and then dismissed in 1893 with a reduced pension. The so, father was? Yeah, okay. his father was. Joyce had begun his education at 1888, so when he was six or so, at Clongo's Wood College and had to leave it in 92 when his dad could no longer pay. After that, he was homeschooled a little bit. He also briefly attended the Christian Brothers O'Connell School in Dublin. And shortly thereafter, his dad met a Jesuit priest who arranged for the boys to attend Belvedere College, which was a Jesuit school. Without fees, right? So oh, he kind of prohibited, which was awfully sweet. Right. He spent five years there, and he followed the educational instruction laid out by what, what I'm just learning about, a thing called the Ratio Studiorum, okay. which is a basically a codified volume of all of the procedures and things that the Jesuits used internationally in their schooling, cool. which now I'm wildly interested in and really want to read. Yeah. It's really cool. I actually looked at a little bit of it, and it basically says how you should conduct a class and what the kids should do at the beginning. Like, at the beginning of every class, they recite, I think it was the rules of prosody. I'm not even sure what those rules are. So I got to go figure that out. Sure. I got I to gotta go read this thing. Seems interesting. So he followed that, and then he apparently was already good at English. He won his first place for English comp in his final two years there. After this, after graduating, he enrolled at University College in 1898 to study English, French, and Italian. He was there exposed to Thomas Aquinas, who basically had a pretty profound influence on his life. Uh, in ni- 1901, he was basically a student living with his parents and nine siblings oh, in Dublin. And he met a guy named Oliver St. John Gogarty, or Gogarty, wow. his model for a character named Buck Mulligan in Ulysses. I get the feeling, although I can't be sure, that he didn't like Buck Mulligan very much, or State- that he didn't like this Gogarty fella. Stately, plump Buck Mulligan. That's like the first sentence, right? Yeah. Like, so he doesn't seem very positive on the guy. No, and Buck Mulligan is kind of a jerk, I think. <laughs> throughout Ulysses. Because you're unclear on what's happening. Because I'm unclear the- on what's actually happening in the novel. Right. But I think that he's kind of low on the guy. Have you ever thought that every life is in many days, day after day, we walk through ourselves meeting robbers? That's a quote. Are you, are you just have, reading quotes? Are you really enjoying up. this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Can you just pitch it every once in a while a little more? I'm really throwing, enjoying I keep throwing that. them in, yeah. Okay. So he... It's got a really famous ending, right? Where it just says yes all the time? Yes. Yes, yeah. yes I will, yes. Okay, well, we can talk about that. He graduated in 1902 and considered studying medicine, but he couldn't get the university medical school to get him a tutoring position in Dublin, so he left there and went to Paris to study medicine. But by 1903, one year later, he had totally given up the study of medicine, (laughs) but he stayed in Paris uh, and appealed to his family to finance his travels. There's like boils and stuff. It's gross. It's gross, man. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I don't like deal with stuff. I was like, you ever like... Pop stuff? That's no, that's gross. gross. No, and that's like base level. That's, that's day one stuff. Yeah, you're... You're, oh. you're going to pop something. Can't do it. In 1903, his mother was dying. 
So he returned to Ireland to tend to her, and he would even read aloud from some of his drafts that he was working on. During her final days, she tried to get him to take communion and give confession, and he wouldn't. And he, he was listening to her draft. Son, you need <laughs> you Jesus. Need pray. Yeah. And, then, and apparently after she died, he, he also wouldn't kneel at her bedside to pray for her like everybody else wanted Aww, him to. So he's, yeah. a, he's one of those... Well, the thing 20th is, century guys. he's got kind of a complicated relationship with religion. Because he, what's was, the, he got, he, you said he got acquainted with Aquinas and then apparently went off the deep end. Like, did something? Yeah, not, it's not weird. Click? I think the church, he and the church have a complicated relationship. He feels that they have failed him in a lot of ways, and <laughs> and I think that he was clearly not living by Christian principles. But it seemed like he came to, I don't know, cordial terms with his Catholicism later in life. It, I'm kind of unclear on it. It does not seem, judging by his works, that he was a strict adherent to Catholicism or Christianity. I think it's because God made food, the devil, the cooks. <laughs> That's a quote from this book. These are all quotes from the book. I'm so sorry. Wow, he died early. All right, so Spoiler. after mom died, his dad began to drink more heavily and the family began to unravel. Joyce hung out with Gogarty, this, this Buck Mulligan fella, and his medical school pals and tried to make money reviewing books. And I think this is, in, in his book Ulysses, he kind of immortalizes himself as Stephen Dedalus. Stephen Dedalus is a young, in, uh, young, well, he's also the main character of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. I was supposed to say Dedalus, like, like the dad of um, We talked about this last Icarus? time. Oh, did we? And AJ said no. He oh, said, okay, what's Dedalus a reference to? I don't know. Oh, is it not? How do you spell it? Do you know? D, I think it's D-E-D-A-L-U-S, Dedalus? I'll look it up because it sounds like the the name of um, Icarus's father. Daedalus, right? yeah. yeah. All right. All I'll right. keep looking. Thank you. I appreciate that. There's a lot of references in this book, but I think he essentially immortalizes himself in the first two, few chapters of Ulysses as the Stephen Daedalus character gotcha. because he's Stephen Daedalus is running around with this guy Buck Mulligan and his pals and you know trying to make money, just scrape it together, writing things. In any case, that he, he was up. That's what he was up to. And then he met a woman named Nora Barnacle. Which Barnacle? Barnacle, which sounds like a fictional pirate mistress. Yar. Right? <laughs> yep. Uh, and she was apparently awesome. He really liked her. She was working as a chambermaid at that time. And so on the 16th of June in 1904, they had their first date. And this is the day that is currently known as Bloomsday. If you've ever heard of Bloomsday, it doesn't have anything to do with flowers at all. It immortalizes the single day that Ulysses, the book, is about. Yes. It's over 500 pages about one day in a man's life, June 16th, 1904. Well, he had a really great date. They fooled around. They fooled around. Oh, my word. And then he immortalized this in his book, Ulysses. Uh, their relationship would continue for 37 years. Wow. You mean their marriage? Their relationship. They would eventually get <laughs> married, but they wouldn't weren't married for a good portion of it. Shortly after this first date, he approached another woman and was beaten up by her partner for approaching her. So he got knocked knocked out a little bit, and there was a guy who picked him up and took him home. And this became one of the models for his character Leopold Bloom, okay. who is the main character of Ulysses. Okay. So this guy that sort of helped him off the street and helped clean him up and take him home and make sure he was okay is in the story. Well, essentially, yeah, Leopold Bloom is the main character. He's the like protagonist. A, they named after him, so that's kind of nice. Yeah. yeah, and it actually happened, right, in, in, the, in the book. In the book, Stephen Dedalus gets kind of beat up and left by his friends, okay. and so Leopold takes him home. And so it's sort of a reenactment of this thing. I think the guy's real name was Alfred H. Hunter, the one who helped, helped him home. He was apparently a great singer. He gave concerts in Dublin, won third prize in a singing contest, and wait, even maybe wait. impressed Uli his Ulysses, wife. Or sorry, Joyce or his Joyce. buddy? Okay. Yeah. Sorry, Joyce. We're back to Joyce now. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying. 
Uh, he, in this, he tried to develop his literary, literary reputation. He tried to write something called A Portrait of the Artist, but was flat rejected. He later reworked it into a novel about his youth called Stephen Hero, which he later abandoned. He wrote a poem called The Holy Office that was rejected for being unholy. And eventually he moved in 1904 into a Martello Tower near Dublin that his buddy Gogarty was renting. And he left within a week uh, for Gogarty and another roommate they had 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 fired a pistol at some pans above his head in the middle of the night while he was sleeping. Mm. So shooting off guns in his room and he's like, Boys, I am out. Yeah. I am gone. And I think this is also in the, the novel somewhere. He and Nora left Ireland less than a month later. And a month after they were gone, they'd been through London, Paris, Zurich, Trieste, and eventually to Pola, which was a naval, naval base where he finally landed a position teaching English to naval officers. Oh, and Nora was pregnant oh, okay. a month after they had left. Uh, as soon as he could, he left Pola. He didn't like it very much and went to Trieste. So I, I guess I could go through more of this. The rest is just sort of a chronicle of him jumping from place to place to place, essentially looking for literary positions. He wants okay. to teach. He wants to write. Eventually, World War I breaks out, so he flees to Switzerland and stays there for a while. He starts a, an acting company called The English Players, I think. Engli- yeah, The English Players. She, his wife did roles on stage, and he sang, right, yeah. kind of in the, in the background. Eventually, that was not as successful he had financial problems, went to Trieste, went to Paris, and then eventually he met a woman named Sylvia Beach in Paris, and she ran a bookstore called the Shakespeare and Company. You ever heard of Shakespeare and Company? Yes. Yeah, it's right there next to Notre Dame, right? And yes. if you are a tourist in Paris, you've probably stopped there. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently it was also a publishing company back then, and so she agreed to publish some of his works. Did they publish Ulysses? I don't think they did it yet, okay. but she did publish some of his stuff. Um, he, he did publish it in 1921, yeah. and it had issues. He was sued for obscenity for his episode Nausicaa, which we'll get to, and his publishers were forced by the courts to stop publishing because it was obscene. Wow. And then eventually it was banned, full-out banned, and it would stay banned from 1922 until 1936 because it was obscene. obscene. Though he still published through Beach's bookshop, she, which, you know, illegally, she would mail plates to subscribers in England, right, because they were in Paris, and eventually the postal services of both countries got wise and started confiscating stuff, but they would still smuggle it, right? So they would still smuggle plates back and forth and books and things. Um, And then eventually in 1931, he married Nora, which was after 27 years of relationship, they finally got together. He had chronic eyesight problems because of a disease he had had. His, I think it was his left eye was practically uh, practically blind in his right eye, like okay. barely worked. Um, he even in 1938 became involved in helping Jews escape Nazi persecution during World War II. After the defeat of France, he fled Nazi occupation and returned to Zurich uh, and eventually died in Zurich of an perforated duodenal ulcer. Oh, yeah. So at a certain point, he just stopped going back to to Dublin. He did not have a great time there, and things were rough for him. But this guy has been all over the place. He was in... He was sometimes a a national of one country, having originated in a different country. And so when World War II was happening, he was actually watched by two different secret services as he was in Switzerland to make sure that he wasn't running information for the other side, right? Because he'd been living in Trieste, but he was originally from Dublin, 
And so he, he was just trying to make money. Like that's all he wanted right. to do was to make money on his books. As far as I know, he, there wasn't anything else sketchy going on, but he had a pretty storied life, yeah. right? Had a lot going on. And a lot of that does make it into Joyce's Ulysses. Did he have financial success from writing uh, before he died, I guess? Eventually, sort of, but he just had, I, I get the impression that he just had lavish spending habits, okay. right? And so he had, always outspend whatever money came in. Exactly. He just he just liked to spend his money, I guess. Bummer. And eventually he had a few kids with Nora. And so that, you know, and then sometimes his siblings would live with him and stuff. And so he had, I mean, he had a lot of people to provi- provide for, which makes sense. Sure. Did I say that he started a cinema? No. Nope. No. He eventually did start a cinema because they had one in Trieste and they didn't have one in Dublin. Oh. And he went and he started it really well received. But then when he left, it fell apart. <laughs> so, you know, he, he has some successes. He's also got a few failures. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the overview of the book. So what is Ulysses? What do you guys currently know about the book? Well, what you just said, which is it's one day in a man's life. One day in a man's life. I know that that you hate it. That's really all I know about this. I know. My feelings are, I I would say that the needle lists a little bit towards hatred, but maybe a little bit more towards, also towards curiosity, if that's the other side of hatred. Um, It's probably not. I don't know if that was the two sides. Um, I know that it's about a man who has either a wife or a lady partner who's considering having an aff- cheating, on him. Okay. cheat on him. Going to cheat on him. I know that it is touted as being wildly incomprehensible. Yep. Just to read. And stream I know of conscience. That's like a phrase I hear for it. Stream like, of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And then that last page I know is famous where it's just like the word yes is repeated over and over and over. Okay. That's all I know. This book is, it's a bear. It's, at times, I kid you not, it was like reading the phone book. (laughs) And you know that feeling when you read a paragraph and you're like, oh man, I just, I haven't been paying attention. What did I just read? And you have to go back and read Uh it again. Yeah. That, you have to have that. You have to read with your mind kind of blank or else you literally cannot get through the text. Okay. So you sort of have to space out and get into the Zen place where you just let the words come in because you're not going to understand them. Like you're just not. Okay. You're not going to get everything. You're not going to understand all the references. You're not probably not going to get the Latin. You're probably not going to get the Italian or the Maybe French. Maybe that's the point. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think you don't it is. read the book. The book reads you. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> but that's, I really, I did have to get into this weird trance-like state to read this thing because it's 600 pages. You're just not going to get through it otherwise. Somewhat, like, is it about the feeling, you know, Graham's making a joke, but like, is it about the feeling you have going through this? Is it kind of like a type of impressionism where it's, again, that, what what is your reaction to this paragraph oh, you're having? Man. So yes and no. I, there's so much going on in this book that there's uh, one one episode is of of classical stuff is not going to do it justice. I hear that there's another podcast that a guy has been doing for like 16 years and he is not through the book yet. He is cool. he's going through it piece by piece to try to explain it. And I've heard, although I haven't confirmed this, that Joyce wrote this book to be something that someone could spend a lifetime doing analysis of. That your life's work would be analysis of his book, Ulysses. We've, when, many, when, it, when we did our T.S. Eliot episode forever ago, we talked about Ezra Pound having his cantos, which I forget how many there are of them, uh, but maybe it's the 101, however many there are in Dante. Anyway, but it's like, it's incomprehensible. And both in the sense of it incorporates many um, languages, it'll have you know, Latin stuff in there, but also part, some of it, sometimes it's just a picture instead of there being words. And sometimes mm. the words are just out of order. Like, is it that kind of incomprehensible or is it? Well, we're, I'm going to show you little, little sections of it okay. to maybe give you a taste. 
And there are parts of it that are just flatly incomprehensible. Okay, okay. And there are parts of it that you can comprehend. It's written in so many different styles that it's, it's hard to nail it down to one place. Okay. But it's funny that you bring up Pound because P- they were actually friends. I'm sure. And Pound yeah, became a big promoter of his yeah, work. Yeah, that doesn't surprise a, me. Was a big, so big you know how Picasso was an, an amazingly accomplished classical painter? Yes. And Before. was very realistic in his painting and then developed his own style mm-hmm. where it sort of broke it down and, and it's sort of not cartoony, but you know what I mean? Like Car- that, that Component sort of, parts, that, yeah. That, yeah. Cubism, yeah. The cubism is... Ulysses, the same kind of thing. Like, was Joyce actually a well-accomplished writer and prose writer and somebody that was well-classically educated? And this is that version of it? Is he sort of feeding into that early 20th century... Like Dadaism? Uh, yeah, kind of thing? or the sort of the, 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 the encroaching nihilism of the modern world and, um, and um, you know, the, the T.S. Eliot uh, 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 shoring up against my ruins kind of thing. Is that, is that what he's doing? Oh boy, I wish I could tell you. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd read something else by him prior to this. I've been told that I should, and I tried reading Portrait of the Artist as a young man, but it's the same stuff. It's yeah. the same, it's <laughs> but the it's same business. But it's much shorter. It is much shorter. Yeah, yeah. So if you if you want to figure out if you're going to enjoy this thing, which you probably won't, uh, then you can read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man first. Is it one of these things where you, if you just blanket say, I love this, and people say, I tried to read and I don't understand it, you can you can sort of double down on that and feel important? Yes. And okay. so here's, here's my theory. <laughs> as I read this, I thought, this must be how my ninth graders feel trying to read the Iliad. <laughs> It has to be, That's so great. right? Where it's just like, I don't know what's happening. Yeah. I don't know who's talking. I don't know where they are. I don't know what's going on. I don't get any of the references. I don't know who any of these people are. Right. That, I was like, this has to be what it feels like. And I all of a sudden had a very deep sympathy for my uh, ninth graders as they go through all of my books. Now, I don't, I, you guys know that I was a big critic of The Wasteland, right? Yes, I recall. I don't know if this falls into that same thing. <laughs> wait, 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 The Wasteland's worse? Yes, he's going to say yes. Well, my theory is that yes. And here's why. <laughs> I hate this song. But I, uh, I could be wrong. Why are we here? I could be wrong. I'm willing to be convinced. I'm willing to be convinced. Here's why I think the wasteland is worse. <laughs> I hope you're watching on YouTube right now. Graham has left the building. <laughs> <laughs> so, Are you I, trolling us right now? <laughs> uh, right, so my, my theory, and you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, is that that one is obfuscation without the content. This one is all the content to the point of obfuscation. Now, I don't know that that's better. I think this this thing can be... Can you say what you mean by that? So I mean that what happened in The Wasteland is that he took out so much as to make it only confusing to make one single point, right? I disagree, Where it's just sort of like... Just an agreement with AJ's point is you can see original versions of The Wasteland and there is more kind of supporting information as to like who's talking or what's going on and Pound cut all that out because he didn't want it to be understandable. So exactly. just to add, just to say what, you, yes, that is right. literally what happened to the wasteland. Yes. This one has so much in it that, that I would have these occasional glimpses where I'm like, oh my gosh, I know what he's talking it's about. It's the maximal writing that you're talking about. Yeah. In the is, episode. I was yeah. like this reference, he's talking about Achilles and I'd be like, okay, this paragraph has all of a sudden opened up and it sings to me because I understand the references. Right. Right. And then a second later I'd get shut down because I'm like, I don't know any of these references. I don't get it at all. And, and I'm thinking that with study, with real concerted study, this could be something that you absolutely come to love as a masterwork. Because I, I will admit, this is a masterwork, right? This is... How do you know it, if it doesn't make any sense? Because pieces of it do. And because he's not... 
He's not necessarily writing it for your enjoyment. I don't think. You're not <laughs> yeah. probably going to have a good time. That's what it sounds like. At least not at the beginning. Sure. Right? He is writing it because it really is like he is he is not building a house, he's building a castle. Does it make more sense by the end of it? Like do you get into some kind of groove with it? Kind of, yeah, although I thought about trying to write my own Sparknotes summary version of what happened in the book and the best I'd come up with is that Stephen Daedalus lives with a guy. Uh-huh. I don't think he likes him. Uh-huh. His mom is dead. Harold Bloom <laughs> loves his wife, I think. Okay. Carries a potato in his pocket. Okay, so here, let's let's just move into the story itself Great. and then we can return to the question of whether it's good or not at the end. Great. Okay, so here, I'll give you my summary and then I'm going to read you the summary from the companion book that in itself is th- over th- 400 pages. Oh and this is a guy that worked with James Joyce. Oh, wow. To, to give you, basically, here's what's going on in the book. And I have a h- trouble even understanding this. Sure. So I almost need a spark notes of the spark notes. Good. But this is the spark notes version, and it gives you a lot of else what, what else is going on. And so I kind of wish that I'd taken more time with the book rather than just the five months that I gave it, right? It needs years. <laughs> That's what it needs. Okay. Five so months. So here's my summary. Yeah. yeah, Stephen Daedalus, poet or philosopher, he Both? teaches, okay. I think, lives with a guy he doesn't like, and his mom is dead. Also, his, uh, his, the head of his school is concerned about hoof and mouth disease. And then Harold Bloom lives with this wife. She is apparently very beautiful, and he likes food. And he, goes, he does some things in his day. He makes breakfast. He buys some soap that he keeps in his pocket. He visits a bar. He goes to a funeral. I think he goes to a christening of a kid. Okay. He goes and canvases for ads. That's what he does. He's an ad man. When you, when you say you think something happened, what does that mean? Sometimes I'm unclear about what is happening. Okay. I don't actually know what's going on in the novel. For example, here's, a, here's an actual conversation that I had with my book club. Okay. So he was on the beach. And everyone's like, really the beach? Like, yes, I think he was on the beach. And there were two people walking on the beach. Were they a couple? I don't know. I thought they were both women. Were they both women? Did they have a dead fetus in their bag? I don't think it was a fetus. I thought it was a dog. No, the dog's at their feet. What's in the bag? They had a bag? Like that is almost word for word the conversation that we had. And most of our book club nights, we would just come and say, I I don't know. You made reference to this. All, you also lost half of your book club going through this book, right? Yeah, we knew that we would. We knew that we'd have uh, only a few people get through. Yeah. So he goes through his day. Eventually, he receives a letter from a romantic liaison he's sort of having on the side Uh he goes to a brothel I think to keep Daedalus safe he talks with Daedalus he goes home and goes to sleep okay I think that's the book oh that's the entire book he takes a bath okay at one point (laughs) great thanks that's the whole book that's all that happens okay right okay here is the summary from Stuart Gilbert's James Joyce's Ulysses it's a study on the book And here's the summary of actually what happens in the novel. Okay. Okay. It's a little long, but it makes makes way more sense than what I just tried to say. In the first episode, and this is a little aside for me, there are, I think, 12, 12 episodes. um, Nine episodes? There's... (laughs) There's got to be 12. It's an episode. I think there's 12, yeah. It's got to be 12 episodes. It's supposed to, yeah, part two, one, two, three, part two, part three, part... Yeah, there's 12. Okay. So there's 12 episodes. In the first episode, we discover Stephen living in a disused Martello Tower overlooking Dublin Bay in the company of Buck Mulligan, a cynical medical student with a taste for blasphemy, 
and a somewhat ridiculous Oxford man named Haynes. Next, we find him at 10 a.m. giving a Roman history lesson at the Mr. Deasy's school, where, as Mr. Deasy correctly anticipates, he is not destined to remain very long. And finally, we see him walking on the Dublin Strand, hear his musing on things seen and unseen, and follow the restless current of his associative thoughts symbolized by the upswelling tide. There is, as will be shown later, an intimate connection between the personalities of Stephen and Mr. Bloom. The Ulysses of this modern odyssey, the spiritual relationship of these two apparently pulls apart, is one of the elite motifs of the book. Thus, this detailed presentation of Stephen's mental makeup is an integral part of the psychological background of Ulysses. Mr. Bloom's day begins, like Stephen's, at 8 a.m. when he is preparing his wife's morning tea at their house, number 7 Eccles Street. He goes out for a few minutes to buy a kidney for breakfast, after having set the kettle on the fire. On his return, he hands his wife her letters in the bedroom and presently brings up the tray with the tea things. Mrs. Bloom is better known in Dublin as Madame Marion Tweedy, the singer. An overripe, indolent beauty of a southern type, she is of mixed Spanish, Jewish, and Irish extraction, this lady is admirably fitted to the taste of Mr. Bloom, who is of Jewish descent. Unfortunately, however, for him, Marion Bloom is not satisfied by the exclusive attentions of her mature husband, who tolerantly imputes her frequent infidelities, which, nevertheless, he deplores, to the call of her Spanish blood. Amongst the letters which Mr. Bloom hands her is one from a certain Blazes Boylan, a young Dublin man about town who is acting as her impresario in a coming concert tour, and is the most recent of her lovers. In his letter, he tells her that he is coming at four that afternoon to show her the program. Throughout Mr. Bloom's day, the thought of this interview will weigh on his mind. Every time he encounters Boylan or hears his name mentioned, the comfortable flow of his silent monologue is checked. He tries to concentrate his attention on the first object that meets his eye, but can never wholly rid himself of his obsession. At 10 o'clock, Mr. Bloom starts his day's work. He is naturally sociable and anxious to please, and his métier of advertisement canvasser requires that he should keep in touch with many classes of Dubliners, businessmen, editors, potential clients of all kinds. For in Dublin, as in most small capitals, bonhomie brings business, and the man who is known as a good fellow, a mixer, and cultivates relations with as many of his fellow citizens as possible, has a pull over an unsociable rival, even though the latter be more competent. His first visit, however, has a romantic object. He obtains from a branch post office a letter addressed to him under the antonym of Henry Flower by a trusting typist, Martha Clifford. For Mr. Bloom, considering his wife's Spanish ways, one can hardly blame him, is himself no model of fidelity, though his sins are rather of intention than commission. In a meditative mood, hoping to hear some music, he enters All Hallows, St. Andrew's, church to witness the end of a communion service. Then he orders from a chemist a face lotion from his wife and visits a bathing establishment. The next episode describes a funeral attended by Mr. Bloom in the company of Mr. Dedalus Sr. and others. The deceased, Dignam, was a friend and when, after the burial, a subscription is opened for the widow, Mr. Bloom makes what is considered his means a generous donation. At noon, he visits a newspaper office to arrange for an advertisement. Stephen visits the same office a little after Bloom. He has drawn his salary at the school and so can invite the editor and his cronies to a neighboring bar for drinks. The invitation, needless to say, proves acceptable. He just misses encountering Bloom. It is now lunchtime and Mr. Bloom feels the pangs of hunger. He looks into a popular restaurant but is disgusted by the sight of the animals feeding. His gorge rose. 
Finally, he takes the edge off his appetite with a sandwich and a glass of burgundy at Davy Beern's public house. The scene now shifts to the National Library, where a quasi-platonic dialogue is engaged between Stephen Dedalus and some literary lights of Dublin. Mr. Bloom makes a brief appearance. He has to look up an advertisement in the back of the back number of the Kilkenny people, but again, does not encounter Stephen. The next episode consists of 18 fragmentary scenes of Dublin life, concluding with the coda describing the vice-regal process through Dublin. Each fragment is thematically linked up with the others and with the book as a whole. It is now four o'clock, and Mr. Bloom's hunger will no longer be denied. He has a belated lunch at the Ormond Hotel, where Mr. Dedalus Pear and others are celebrating the trinity of wine, women, and song, in the company of Richie Golding, Stephen's uncle. At 5 p.m., we find Mr. Bloom at Barney Kiernan's Tavern, where a charitable errand on behalf of the late Dignam's widow has taken him. The xenophobia of an intoxicated nationalist known as The Citizen leads to his precipitate retreat from the Patriot's den. Weary and worn out after incessant peregrination, Mr. Bloom now decides to take the air on Sandy Mount Beach. Under the last rays of the setting sun, he yields to the seductions of a precious, oh, sorry, precocious Dublin chit, Gertie McDowell, but does not follow up his conquest. At 10 p.m., he visits the lying-in hospital to inquire after a friend, Mrs. Purefoy, who is being delivered of child. Stephen is there, grousing with some medical students, and at last he and Mr. Bloom come into contact. Stephen is gradually becoming intoxicated, and Mr. Bloom, attracted by the young man, decides to take him under his wing. When the band of revelers sally forth, and Stephen makes for the Dublin night town, Mr. Bloom's paternal instinct prompts him to follow. The next scene, situated in the brothel quarter of Dublin, is the most remarkable in Ulysses. Stephen, under the influence of drink, and Mr. Bloom, exhausted by his day-long odyssey, are sensitive to the hallucinating ambience and see their most secret desires, their fears, their memories, take form and live and move before their eyes. As a side note, my book club and I thought he was on absinthe. Okay. I don't know. It feels like an acid trip. Okay. This scene, corresponding to the Circe episode of the Odyssey, is usually described as the Valpurgis night or pandemonium of Ulysses. If you remember back to when we did, uh, what was his name? Faust. Faust, yeah. Faust, the Valpurgis night was the, the crazy night with the witches. witches. Yeah. Sa- it's the same feel. It really does. A lot of, there's a lot of parallels between that book and this one. Yeah. The last three episodes describe Mr. Bloom's return. He is accompanied by Stephen, who has decided that he will not go back to the Martello Tower, which he shares with Mulligan. On their way to Eccles Street, they halt to take a cup of coffee at a cabin's shelter, where they encounter a marine, Munchausen, who regales the company with tall yarns of adventure in far lands, and other exotic nightfarers. Later in Mr. Bloom's kitchen, over a cup of cocoa, they compare experiences, and, in the catechistic form of question and reply, the personality, antecedents, and past life of Mr. Bloom are scientifically dissected. Last of all, when Mr. Bloom is asleep beside his wife, we have the long, unpunctuated, silent monologue of the latter, their fine quintessence of unrefined femininity. femininity. At this episode, Arnold Burnett wrote, I have never read anything to surpass it, and I doubt if I have ever read anything to equal it. Ulysses ends, like the marriage service, with amazement. So, Okay, that actually makes it sound super interesting. So, I, obviously, I, I, don't follow, I don't know who the characters are and all that stuff, but... That does make it sound super interesting. Okay, so the book is designed to mirror the Odyssey. Thus, the first three chapters are to mirror the travels of Telemachus, right? So Telemachus has the first four books of the Odyssey, I Mm -hmm. think. 
And this, the first three are Stephen Daedalus. And so it, as the Odyssey, the old Odyssey is sort of the coming of age of two men. This is the chronicle of two men who are going through their day and going through their journey. And as Mr. Bloom is returning to his wife, his Penelope, uh, he has found that she has kind of been unfaithful, very much unlike what actually happens in the Odyssey. Now, to, to kind of obfuscate that mythological underpinning, Joyce has actually deleted the titles of all of the, the chapters. So you don't really know what chapter you're on. You have to go back to the table of contents to oh. find the chapter names. And each chapter is one hour in his life. Oh. And so it... So, so Sorry, it tells you when you're in a new episode but doesn't tell you the name of that episode? Yeah, there's just a gap with, okay. no, with no chapter title. So it begins at 8 a.m. and ends at 4 a.m. after Penelope, which is her thing. Now, each chapter and this is where it gets really complicated, is doing something completely strange. So each one has a scene. You know when you turn the book sideways <laughs> that... Yeah, uh, there's a graph. <laughs> For those watching on YouTube, we've got a like, sideways graph here in the, the companion piece. <laughs> so it has a, an hour, an organ, an art, a color, a symbol, and a technic. A technic meaning like a, a type of narrative. This is like wacky hermeticism. Yeah. What do you mean? Oh, like hermeticism, you know, the, 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 the idea of like the unity of all the sciences together to like turn lead into gold, that kind of thing. The, the old hermeticism. I don't know. How do you define hermeticism? I don't I don't know. Know. So, um, so for example, uh, the Lotus Eaters happens in the bath. It's at 10 a.m. Oh, so let's skip that one. That one's a little inappropriate. Uh, so Hades, it happens in the graveyard. It's at 11 a.m. The heart is the organ. Religion is the art, so it will pop up and again and again where they talk about religion. Colors are white and black. The symbol is the caretaker, and the technique is incubism, right? So there's narrative, catechism, monologue, narcissism, dialectic, labyrinth, gigantism. Oh, I bet that one's Cyclops. Yeah, so in the Cyclops episode, for example, that chapter happens in the tavern. It's talking about that guy, the citizen, Uh and everything is way overblown. Everything they do is the most maximal, huge, amazing, florid language. And he does these huge lists of things and describes people as like grand and barrel chested when they're just regular folks sitting around a table, right? There's even one chapter, the chapter he's in the tavern and he's kind of thinking about the two girls that run the place where they do an overture at the beginning where you get snippets of the language, kind of like, you know, the the old movies when you'd get little bits of each song at the beginning, right when they did the credits, they'd do like a little bit of the whole score. Mm, yeah, like, and then you'd get the score as it went through. Yeah, 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 right? yeah. It's the same thing. You will see those snippets of language pop up again. And then he really focuses on bringing out sound. And so there's little tings and bings and even the words he uses, or there's a lot of onomatopoeia. Uh-huh. And so he makes it sound like a song as you read through the chapter. So every single one of these chapters is incredibly thoughtfully wrought. Uh-huh. And that's what I mean by maximalism. Right. He's not just doing one thing, he's doing 12 things. There's one chapter where he... Just on your little chart thing you were just looking at? Yeah. So are those things that you would be able to figure out as you're going through it? So would you say, if if anyone's listening to this episode and ignoring your advice to not read this book, do they need to pick up the guidebook that you were just uh, uh, reading from? Probably. I don't know. that. Like, you need to read it slow and you need to have a guidebook. Okay. Right? Just like with the Iliad, you probably need to take your time with it and have somebody there to help you through it. Otherwise you're just not going to enjoy it at all. And this one from Stuart Gilbert is like the one is the one. Cause he worked directly with Joyce. Sure. So I've heard. So I wanted to give you guys a chance to take a look at some of, some of the actual writing, just so you as an audience know what you're getting into and 
and maybe you can track a little bit. Oh, I was going to mention one cool chapter where he begins having written it in Latin uh-huh. and then directly translated it word for word into English. So there's that's like feels like broken grammar. And then as you read through the chapter, it goes from Latin to modern slang, like through every iteration of English language all the way up to slang. And so is it comprehensible? No. Not really. Yeah. Is it impressive? Yes, absolutely. You're not selling me on this. I, I know. <laughs> I, I'm not, that's not my goal. Know, I'm simply, I'm trying to educate you on the book, not necessarily convince you to read it. Are you glad that you read it? I'm glad that I conquered it. Yeah. Right? I wasn't beat. And, and honestly, after reading so it once, like I kind of, I kind of yeah. want to go back and read it again and read it again yeah. and like really give it the time it deserves. But that's the thing is if, if I have to give my whole life to read, to understand this book, it just seems cocky. Yeah. Right? True. Like if, Unless it's actually that good. Like, that's the question. And is it better to have written a book that is understandable by your audience and still does all these things? Mm, No, because the book that's understandable about the 24-hour period of the day isn't interesting, right? Yeah. Like that. Sure. Because even when you tell the plot in the interesting way, it's still just 12 hours of a guy's day. He's trying to say that, like, in your ordinary every... Or your ordinary day, you can have... That which is also encapsulated in like the great story of humanity, the Odyssey. Um, to circle back, Hermeticism—it's like the belief that there is one true theology of the universe that was given by God to man in antiquity, hmm. and it's where we get like, you know, um, that the constellations and the humors and all the, and that every sort of society on Earth has their own version of it, and it's humanity's. Uh, mission to like compile all these things into one into one compendium of like the secret and yeah. um, and and so the idea that like each chapter is broken up into these like 12 quadrants that are talking about like a color and an, and an object and a and a thing that's like um, um, the the person who is like, I don't know if they're called the hermeticals, but people who mm. is in, are into that kind of stuff, like thinks that that's true of everything in the universe. And um, um, yeah. Anyway, that's where it says. Okay. So this is, I think, episode two or three. This is where he is, so, Stephen Daedalus is teaching in his little schoolhouse. Oh, the teaching about Roman history? Is it Roman history? I think it is Roman history. Something. So, Graham, I got you a book. If you want to open it up and take a look, you can look can it up. Find it online. What's if you the... look up the, uh, I think it's the Ulysses Project. Uh-huh. You can actually get a PDF of it, and you can have it highlight all of the links, and it has hyperlinks. And I was going to recommend this to any of our listeners. Oh, that's cool. You can actually click on stuff, and it will help to explain those things. So, tell me what chapter we're on. I think chapter two. Is it Nestor? It should start with you, Cochrane. Yeah, got it. All right, so he is teaching, and I he goes, am, I'm not there. You, Cochrane, what city sent for him? And the kid goes, Tarentum, sir. Very good. Well, there was a battle, sir. Very good. Where? The boy's blank face asked the blank window, <laughs> fabled by the daughters of memory, and yet it was in some way not as if memory fabled it. A phrase, then, of impatience, thud of Blake's wing of excess. I hear the ruin of all space, shattered glass and toppling masonry, and time one livid final flame. What's left us then? All right, did you guys get understand that sentence at all? A little bit. Well, the daughters of memory are... I'm just clicking on the links right now. <laughs> oh, you cheater. You gave me the link That's to true. this. That's okay. true. 
And Blake's uh, Wing of Excess, that's got to be William Blake, right? Yes. That's what this says. Must be. Yeah. Um, so the little kid can't, he doesn't know the... He doesn't know where. And he goes, I forget the place, sir. 20, mm-hmm. 279 B.C. Asculum, Stephen said, glancing at the name and date in the gorse guard of the book. Yes, sir. And he said, another victory like that and we are all done for. The phrase the world had remembered. A dull ease of the mind. From a hill above a corpse-screwn plain, a general speaking to his officers leaning upon, leaned upon his spear. Any general to any officers, they lend ear. So he just, it's, it's a little bit of the dialogue. And the dialogue, by the way, doesn't really tell you who's speaking. It just right. gives a dash. It also doesn't punctuate. And you are getting his randomized, yeah. connected thoughts in between. The problem with Stephen is that he's an artist. And so you are, his is a much, much more difficult to understand than Bloom's. When we These get are, to Bloom, it's simpler. So Stephen Daedalus's thoughts are those ones that are in between the dialogue. Yeah, you, okay. that's, that's him thinking. And so you're getting all the stuff that's going on in his head in between. Okay. And so that's actually a pretty fun, fun little bit. And I found it to be a pretty accurate picture of what teaching was like. Um, and also how all of his analogies come from the story that he's talking about right now. Like you're not having to learn a new set of references for that. Like it's all about the same thing. Right. right? Okay. And then I wanted to read you maybe the first sentence of the next section. For me, it's page 30. Proteus. Does it start with ineluctable modality? Ineluctable modality of the visible. At least that, if no more, thought through my eyes. Signature of all things I'm here to read, sea spawn and sea wreck, the nearing tide, that rusty boot. Snot green, blue silver, rust, colored signs, limits of the diaphany. But he adds, in bodies. Then he was aware of them bodies before of them colored. How? By knocking his sconce against them, sure. Go easy. Bald he was and a millionaire. Maestro de color chisano. Limit of the diaphany in. Why in? Diaphany. A diaphany. If you can put your five fingers through it, it is a gate, if not a door. Shut your eyes and see. Yeah, obviously I have no idea what that means. Yeah, I have no, I have no idea. Like I'm, it's impenetrable to me, right? So this is, Daedalus is kind of hard to get through. Um, I also wanted to read a section from the Cyclops. So for me, it's page 214. It's, uh, I was just passing the time. Yeah, I was just passing the time. Yeah, I'm not going to, this Joyce Project thing is great. If anyone is really cra- crazy the, enough to jump into it, this is, it's, it's the way to do it. It has everything. And again, the hyperlinks literally explain all the references. It, it still makes no sense, but it's, yeah. it's very, very good. So a little ways down, a few paragraphs down after that little bit of dialogue, there's one that says in Innisfail, uh, there lies a land. Yeah, I got it. Got it? Yeah. In Innisfail, there, the fair, there lies a land, the land of Holy Mikan. There rises a watchtower, beheld of men afar. There sleep the mighty dead, as in life they slept, warriors and princes of high renown. A pleasant land it is, soothe of murmuring waters, fishful streams where sport the gunnard, the place, the roach, the halibut, the gibbed haddock, the grills, the dab, the brill, the flounder, the mixed coarse fish generally, and other denizens of the aqueous kingdom too numerous to be enumerated. Right, so that's kind of the bombastic language that he does here, which is, right, supposed to be gigantism, I think, is the the thing they called it. Which is then continued throughout this entire episode. Yeah, the whole episode reads like that, where everything is these huge lists of wonderful things, and it's too numerous and too wonderful and too grand. I'm wondering if there is a, well, the the style then is to match 
that the episode is titled Cyclops, right? So it's mm-hmm. gigantism because it's a giant he's talking about. Yes, that one that's intentional. Okay, but then I'm not understanding like why. Or is there some narrative reason why the style switches to gigantism? Or that's just I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I, I wish I did. Again, I I mean it's it would take a lifetime of study to get to gather this. Yeah. The one so a lot of these sections are very different, right? The one where he's on the beach and looking at that young girl, Gertie, uh-huh. it's totally inappropriate what's happening, but that one is actually more incomprehensible because it's not his inner monologue. It is hers. Okay. And hers is well put together and thoughtful and easy to understand. And so when he switches characters, you will feel the difference in thought between your characters. And I think the most, the place where this is most pronounced is in the final chapter, which is Penelope. This is, I, I think there are three periods in this whole chapter, and it's maybe 30, 40 pages long. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it is. It is mostly. This is the most stream of consciousness. If there you possibly just even is. look at it, it is daunting to look at because it's just a wall of text. Yeah, there's no oh, paragraphs. No paragraphs there's no yeah. anything. It is just a yeah, a brick wall of text. Oh, man, if I had to say anything about this section, apparently she's supposed to be a picture of nature, right? She starts as like a, a woman asleep in a bed, and then eventually she is the embodiment of nature itself. And there's a bunch of other stuff going on there. It's hard for me to follow. But if I had to call this anything, I would probably call it sexist. Yeah. Really. He's supposed to be in the in mind of a woman, and he does not portray her very well, oh. right? She is concerned with clothing, and she hates other women, and she's jealous of her husband, and she cheats around. Maybe it's just her, but it certainly doesn't paint women very well when you've had a book full of men that are thinking fairly clearly. Did you say Gertie was? Uh, Gertie's was all right. Yeah. To me, it's just But a... she was also incredibly impressionable, and she was a teenager, right? Mm-hmm. She was flirting with Bloom in a way that was probably not becoming to her sex. Now, is just, do you think that that Joyce is saying this about all women or just this particular woman? Uh, let me read a section, and then I'll answer that question. Uh, which section? <laughs> the, just the, I'll start at the beginning. I'm oh, just going to read a little bit of the very beginning. Yes, because he never did a thing like that before, as asked to get his breakfast in bed. Well, if you read of- like that... I don't, I don't know how... Okay, fine, I'll read it nobly. Yes, because he never did a thing like that before as asked to get his breakfast in bed with a couple of eggs since the City of Arms Hotel when he used to be pretending to be laid up with a sick voice doing his highness to make himself interesting to that old... I'm going to skip that word. Mrs. Ryordan, though he thought he had a great... He had a great leg of, and she never left us a farthing, all for the masses for herself and for her soul, greatest miser ever, was actually afraid to lay out 4D for her methylated spirit, telling me all her ailments. She had too much old chatner about politics and earthquakes and the end of the world. Let us have a bit of fun first. God help the world if all women were her sort, down on bathing suits and low necks. Of course, nobody wanted her to wear. I suppose she was pious because no man would look at her twice. I hope I'll never be like her. I wonder she didn't want us to cover our faces, but she was a well-educated woman, certainly, and her gabby talk about Mr. Riordan here and Mr. Riordan there. I suppose he was glad to get shut of her and her dog smelling my fur and always edging to get up under my petticoats, especially then still I like that in him, polite to old women like that and waiters and beggars too. He's not proud out of nothing... But not always. If he ever got anything really serious the matter with him, it's much better for them to go into a hospital where everything is clean. But I suppose I'd have to drink it into him for a month, yes. And then we'd have a hospital nurse next thing on the carpet, have him staying there till they throw him out, or a nun maybe like the smutty... Fo- uh, like, it just goes... It just goes on and on like this. Yeah. It's not very flattering. But were, so, the, were the men flattering? Not necessarily. Well, so, maybe he, so, then he's just, so your question. He, is he just talking about like the stereotypes of humanity, the men being like sort of drunks and louts and fighters and boobs and guys who like 
think they're smarter than they actually are, and yeah, that's, and the lower that's her stereotypes of women, which they are, which are, they're sort of concerned with only like you know uh, how they look and gossip and all that kind of stuff. Okay, yeah. yeah. So here's my argument for why it's good, right? We've what? talked about why yeah. it's hard to understand, why it's hard to get through, and why you'll probably never read it, which you probably shouldn't. I don't know, it's man. Short. You've kind of like laid a pretty no, compelling case. Yeah, pretty so here's why, here's why I like it. Or, or at least here, what, here's why I think that it might actually be something that I'll go back to. Okay. I think what he is trying to do is not only this artistic monolith of having all of these things at play in every chapter and doing all of these crazy artistic things with every chapter and like having references from basically an education that I could never hope to have in my life. It's like when classical lifetime. education goes bad. <laughs> like yeah, when this you, is, this when is you like, classically educate a madman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an edifice to classical education, right? There are references I, even as a classicist, don't, don't get. But I think what he's trying to do, even with all the obscenity and with all of that like seeming sexism there and the impressionability of that young girl and Bloom being kind of gross and kind of having a woman on the side that he kind of intends to get with, what I think he's trying to do is capture humanity, not in its glory, yeah. not in its baseness, but real in, reality. in reality, what is really happening in a man's mind throughout the day. Like... My listeners know, and I know what, or not, I know what goes on in my head, but they know what goes on in their head throughout the day. And there's so many things that you filter out, things that you would never share, things that you think that are inappropriate, but we get those. We get those in Ulysses. And that's one of the reasons it's said to be so crass, right? Is because what you are getting is all of the deepest, darkest inner thoughts of all of the people and all of their horrible motivations and all the things they do. And, but along with, Everything that's mundane, you also get everything that's glorious. You get the full mix of human experience. He's not trying to glorify it. He's not trying to reduce it. He's just giving it to you. He's saying, here is what we are in a, I don't know, trust up artistic package. Do you, when you read it, or let, let me phrase it this way. Sometimes when I read works like that, and I had the same feeling when, when we did the episode on Sartre, or was it Camus? Which one? The Stranger? Camus. Camus. And stuff like this, that really sort of kind of depressing early 20th century uh, literature where the authors and the artists are realizing like, oh, there's a lot of despair in the world and World War One and after the war and all that kind of stuff, um, where they're sort of writing about people whose lives are kind of unspooling, right? Like if you've ever taken yarn and like, sliced the whole like a like a like a bound up thing of yarn you sliced it with a knife and the whole thing just kind of goes blow and unspools like i think about that as an image of like their lives and their their inner spirit and all this kind of stuff whenever i read books like that i always am left with like gosh darn it i don't want that for me i want meaning and i want relationships that are like self-giving and i want friendships that are you know not mercenary and all these kinds of things is, is that kind of the feeling that you get after this? You're just like, I don't want to be a dirty old man like looking at a 16-year-old on a beach? Well, I definitely had that feeling. Yeah. But, but you know what I mean? Like, does it sort of spur you into that, like, if this is the other side? <laughs> no, but that's the thing is it's not just that. I think mm-hmm. it's easy to focus on that negative, just like it is in anything in history, right? Mm-hmm. You can look at all the negative parts, but there are wonderful things that he does. Yeah. He helps Stephen Daedalus after Daedalus gets into a, a scrap at a, you know, a... A brothel. Mm-hmm. He also goes to a funeral for one of his friends and sees a bunch of his other friends. He buys some nice things for his wife, right? He mm-hmm. does some, and really he does love her. It's very clear. Like he, he really has feelings for her. And even when at the end, 
when she is, you know, looking forward to meeting Blaze's Boylan again and, and continuing her liaison, what she returns to at the end of the chapter is thinking about her husband and saying yes to him when he proposed. And like her world, even as she has her dalliances, revolves around Bloom, right? He is her husband and will stay her husband. And so even as you feel like this sort of unraveling, it's, it is the return that matters. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't get this, again, I don't think it's like, here's a bleak picture of humanity or here's a great picture of humanity. I think it's like, here's a picture of humanity. Mm-hmm. These people aren't necessarily the greatest people. Bloom is kind of an old creep. He's a bit of a lecher. His wife is certainly a lecher. And, but... Or shallow. Or, or, yeah, and very shallow and complainy and, you know, it doesn't seem very logical, very much in a close. And, and the thing is, is he even talks about how he was sort of disappointed with her intellect and would try to tell her about, like, he would be disappointed that other people weren't into intellectual things near her in order to sort of spur her on to intellectual <laughs> things. The last, the, the, ch- the penultimate chapter, the one right before the last, is a question and answer chronicle of what is happening in his head and everything that's going on in his house. Like it'll even say, he opened a drawer. What was in the drawer? And it will list every item in that drawer. And so by the end of the chapter, you have a picture, a complete picture of what he's thinking doing and everything around him as he goes heading to sleep. Oof. It's a lot, but it's also kind of sweet. Like Mm. there are little remembrances and little things that he has kept and little things that he loves. And you kind of get this complete picture of someone else's kitchen, right? I I could, if I wanted to make a movie of this and have everything in it. So I'm fascinated. I'm, yeah. I'm 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 interested in this now. I'm going to keep this this Joyce project thing pulled up. You got maybe. You got your yeah. You, so maybe well, I'll save that question for the in between. Have you seen Synecdoche, New York before? Mm-hmm. Charlie Kaufman film. Nope. It uh, similar um, kind of feel. Yeah, it's because uh, it also has that. What you're seeing isn't what's actually happening. Um, and not to go into spoilers of any of it, but like the the story, the the, the pictures in front of you are not an actual. Um, second by second account of any person's life. And so anyway, there's just something here happening where um, even the naming of each of these chapters. So so a synecdoche is when you have like one word that stands in for the whole of a thing. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's kind of what these titles are doing too, right? That somehow the story of Calypso stands in for this whole chapter, this whole episode that's happening there. Yep even though it doesn't fully capture it. I don't know. Anyway, this is very interesting. For example, the Nausicaa episode, I think is that episode with the girl on the beach. And in the real Odyssey, it was sort of a, like, there were hints about some sort of sexual encounter, right? He emerged kind of naked. She was there to bathe. There was this weird tension happening there. And later Nausicaa would kind of, or like she would want to marry Odysseus. Well, in this book, it is Bloom. He is on the beach and he sees a young girl who's kind of on a picnic with her friends and her friends all run off and she starts to kind of give him a show. And that's the story, right? right? So yeah, Nausicaa is a stand-in for sort of what happens. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you should be proud for having made it through this whole thing. Oh man. So I don't even know how to give my audience advice on how to tackle this thing. If you do tack it, tackle it, maybe don't give yourself too much pressure to get through it. Right. Yeah. Take it easy. Have fun with it, I guess. Cool. Or just don't do it. <laughs> watch the movie. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, watch the movie. I don't know. We had to, in my book club, we had to have a celebration where we gave, we had a, a soap white elephant where we gave each other soap. Mm. And then. Because he buys soap in the book. And, oh. Yeah. And then one of our previous students made us all potatoes, oh. little, little cute woven potatoes because Wonderful. he carries a 
potato an in his old pocket. potato in his pocket for the whole the whole thing. It was fun. Very Irish. There's no film version of this. That's or oh, I hope not. Yeah, good. yeah. Can you imagine what that would be like? Cool. Awesome. Well, this, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the. I don't know. It's. It's, it's a lot. No, I think you. How have, do you tackle a book that is a you know? So I think big. you have piqued both of our interests. Yeah. Um, I did not expect to end the episode this way. Yeah. So this has been classical stuff you should know with AJ Thomas and Graham. And if you go back and listen to this episode, you will realize that this episode has been broken up into twelve <laughs> sections yeah. that mirror the Odyssey. No, yeah. it doesn't. Although that would be a fun episode to do one day. Um, you can find us at classicalstuff.net. You can tweet at us. Um, you can patronize us on Patreon, and we have in-between episodes, and we have all sorts of other little goodies in there. Um, and let's see. You can yeah, email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. And um, if you are on YouTube, smash that like and subscribe button. Let's get this up to 5,000 views. No, I'm just kidding. Um, what do they say on YouTube videos? Like... Uh, like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Um, no, but leave comments and uh, Thomas uh, replies to them. I don't have a YouTube account. We our email account is tied to the YouTube oh, account. You have that YouTube account. I've just ne- I've lit- do you know how many I've never commented on YouTube in my life. I don't even know if I know how to do it. You have the login oh. to the email okay. address. Anyway, you can go uh, to well, someone, this. some of us will Any comment. Any of us can do this. No, <laughs> you no, are not. the oldest thirty-something I have ever <laughs> met. Honestly, um, <laughs> you're asking how to log into an account right uh, now. You can find us on the YouTube. Graham and <laughs> and we love you, <gasps> uh, Internet. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next Tuesday. Bye. 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 See you later.